What's up, patrons? It is Emmett. I'm here with John. How's it going, John? Oh, you know. Yeah. Dead inside. <laughs> Tired. Which is, which is how you know we're recording an episode. <laughs> so we've got the next installment of the True and Only Heaven for You. This one is a, this is the longest chapter in the whole book. It's like 75 pages. It's fascinating. It is not an easy read. It definitely took me longer than all the other ones as well. It is called No Answer But an Echo, The World Without Wonder. So this, this chapter really focuses on three, four thinkers. I mean, really, it opens with Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle, and then it wants to talk about Emerson. They were in correspondence with each other. To do that, he makes a little pit stop into John Edward, the great uh, preacher of the Great Awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Exactly. Yeah. The sermon that you might read in like an American literature class. Exactly. To sort of articulate like what people, the way people have like tamed both Carlyle, not so much, Carlyle is harder to tame, but really tamed Emerson to make him palatable and sort of like disconnected them from their Protestant lineage, lineage. And then he's going to leap from Emerson to William James to talk about aesthetic solution or like to talk about different solutions to the problem of wonder and an increasingly dispiriting world. These guys he really sees as against the grain and puts them in line with the Republican slash populist, like propertarian producerist tradition Mm. he's been sketching for the last few chapters. And he wants to do that by taking a look at their ideas of like manly vigor in the face of disparity, the importance of the inner world and the strength of the inner self over against the depredations of contingency and how they reconcile that with the changing times or fail to reconcile that or refuse to reconcile that with the way the world is changing around them. John, do you think that's a pretty good like cap of what we got here? Yeah, I definitely, I think that's the use to which Lash wanted to put them. And I felt some tension in it and I couldn't tell if it was inherent. Like if he, you know, if he was letting that tension be there himself or if it was kind of like contra to his uses, I'd have mm-hmm. to reread the chapter, honestly, but I think it'll come up as we discuss. Yeah, Thomas Carlyle is someone that I've already read a bit of during yeah. my forays into yield log of Curtis Yarvin in the in the old times. I was about to say, like Yarvin's a big Carlyle guy. That's where he gets a lot of his like metaphysical. I realized ideas. after reading Carlyle that like a lot of what he says is pulled from there, especially the stuff about like chaos and order. And the yeah. way that that is formed in a political like society or whatever, a lot of that is present in things that he suggests you read. He has a three-part blog post about Carlisle on the old blog, the one before the one he runs now, the Substack. And I think if you search like Carlisle in the 20th century, you can find it. But it kind of is like a a pretty good introduction to him. And then he suggests some things you ought to read. And I read a few of those, and they, yeah, I guess they form my background knowledge, but. So you have a far deeper knowledge of Carlisle than I do. I had heard of him because 
it had been pointed out to me that I was roasting Yarvin on Twitter for sort of bungling, for mix, mixing a lot of metaphors to describe the left, which he did, and it was confusing. And somebody pointed out, well, he's doing this chaos, like the, the left is fire type thing because of Carlisle. I was like, well, that's great. But he still also calls the left a beast and still also calls it like three other things in the same metaphor. And it, unless it's like a weird flame beast, it can't be all of these things. Yeah. <laughs> and also yeah. liquid is water or something. <laughs> like I was just like, that's not <laughs> illuminating. But I was like, oh, interesting. I don't know much about Carlisle. I guess I should check him out. So. He has like an interesting career trajectory for like a large portion of his life. He's maybe regarded by his peers as like the most important English man of letters alive, which is funny because now like we've been talking about, no one has printed like a full, like many volume collected works of Carlyle since 1870 in the United Kingdom. So any, and but some things all are just of his only works, all of his works except for on heroes and hero worship and like one selected are out of print in the United States currently. Yeah. I think you can get Sartor Rosardus as well oh, from oxford, oxford. Yeah, yeah yeah but other that, than yeah. that yeah a lot of it's kind of no longer there and he i mean people were like he was the greatest stylist in english and they read him for that reason but they also found him kind of thought-provoking and he had this sort of upward trajectory that really hit a point when he wrote a book called latter-day pamphlets where he argues against republicanism and democracy and he's also somebody who wrote a book about the French Revolution that was very, he did not side against the sans culottes. Mm -hmm. He thought simply that it was a missed opportunity, I think, as someone said, to really get to the bottom of things. Maybe that was Lash, but mm -hmm. it's sort of like a sweeping historical epic about the French Revolution that I've it's always like wanted to read. It's like 800 pages, yeah. yeah. I was like, hmm. So there's uh, a certain, he's, a, he's like an interesting guy, and I think that because he attacked democracy and then eventually wrote something where he he at least says that like slavery is better than wage labor because at least yeah. you have to somehow be cared for whereas if you're a wage laborer you can just be like screwed until you die mm -hmm. and then people have argued that that was like you know it was rhetorical more than real or something like but who knows who really cares either like it just is what it is you can go read it and think about yeah. it if you want and he, and he can but be that wrong didn't help that. him That's either fine. yeah yeah it didn't yeah. help him either it um, did help emerson who was as i thought that it was so interesting when lash said this that he was an uncritical unionist which i was like damn that is a dicey thing <laughs> to say christopher but what i assume he means is that and this is what marx pointed out and what lash intimates towards the end of the chapter is that it was really a transition from chattel slavery to wage slavery Right. And there's all sorts of, I mean, there are many interesting books about this. It is not something that gets emphasized enough because obviously the North won. And to speak ill of the Union and the Union Army, it, people often think is like doing Confederate apologetics, which is ridiculous. But they had their own weird shit going on with how much they exploited people and manufacturers and stuff like that. So anyway, I think that that's what Lash had in mind there. Right. So Lash brings Carlisle in and he creates a category which feels like very provisional to me, but you know, it is what it is. Like the prophetic tradition, which he's including Carlisle in because of a submerged non-Orthodox Calvinism 
which he's identifying in him, which I mm-hmm. think is fair. Like that's, I think I thought that was fair. That's I, totally I was, fair. I was a little sketched. I was like, I don't really know if we can like slate Carlisle into this like weird Republican thing you're doing here because he seemed emphatically against that. Even if he was compared to Burke soft on the sans culotte, but like, I think, yeah, what was interesting about that was he is sort of saying, I, it does feel like he's saying Carlisle has something to say about these kinds of thoughts and perhaps just like the idea of like what a human life should be like in its relationship to vigor or something. Mm-hmm. But this is what I was talking. It felt like there was a lot of tension between like well, the Machiavellian representation of the Republic that we got earlier mm-hmm. or like a sort of public life oriented towards personal development through hardship and all these other things that you might have got. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But here's here's why I think because I, w- I spent a lot of time. So listeners, just so you know, this chapter also like Lash does not telegraph anything for you in this chapter. And I think that's to his detriment here. Usually he can kind of get away with it because he has these great synthetic abilities towards the latter half of the chapter that really shock you. And I don't think that happened as powerfully here. In some ways, this is both the longest and weakest chapter, even if I think some absolutely fascinating things happen that we'll get to. The reason he starts with Carlisle, I'm realizing now, isn't necessarily because he can fit Carlisle directly into that tradition, but because of Carlisle's impact on Emerson. And Emerson is, I think, closer to what Lash wants to talk about. But he wants to get there through Carlyle because he needs to complicate the figure of Emerson in order to make his case. And he needs to justify the submerged Calvinism in both of these guys to add real power to the way he is going to revise the figure of Emerson. Because if you go back to our American canon episode, through reading Lash, I realized that we had fallen into um, some inherited wisdom about who Emerson was and what he believed that Lash very handily like undoes by just quoting and interpreting Emerson at length. So maybe that's what Carlyle's doing here. But either way, like what's interesting about Carlyle is he is obviously an incredibly gifted writer. It's fun to read out loud. It like yeah. flows well. I feel like you're like Kenneth Branagh and you're like reading Shakespeare yeah. almost sometimes. Yeah. There's just like a kind of like power and energy to it, like a Henry V speech. Exactly. He shares, like he has the prophetic quality to him. He is one of the front runners in what becomes social criticism. He writes a novel that is like almost basically postmodern. <laughs> right like yeah. it is it, it is written as what is it like a biography of a german scholar and a reflection on that scholar's works yeah like a clothes guy or whatever and then all the clothes are obviously like a metaphor and yeah and so on it, i've always wanted to read it i haven't found it's, the time yet right it's i mean it sounds demanding and rewarding and very rich but it's right it is also like a concealed confessional autobiography right at the same time well. like so there's like there's some levels things, to that game <laughs> some interesting things that lash doesn't bring up at all that are worth mentioning or barely is that he was an important transmitter of a lot of german philosophy and literature into english yes yeah, um, was it Schilling and 
or Schiller? Like Hegel, maybe Schiller, definitely Schelling, Goethe for sure. He, you know, like anyone, kind of took a lot of what they were doing into himself and then reformulated it in his own terms. But it was definitely influential on him. And it's the way by which all of German idealism comes to Emerson and his contemporaries and other people is via the lens of Carlyle. And also, I would probably wager how it got to a lot of other people in England, like Coleridge. Like yes. He was kind of the sieve through which all of this got poured into the English language initially uh, and popularized whole, in several it, different works. Yeah, the whole like Teuton Anglo like feedback loop in the early to like mid modern period is like super fascinating mm -hmm. because you get all these German guys like reading Shakespeare. Yeah. And then like absolutely shitting on each other for not having <laughs> read Shakespeare. 